Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of England, episode 207, The Underworld. I am a proud member of the Agora Podcast Network. To find out more, just go to agorapodcastnetwork.com for a delicious smorgasbord of podcasts. Before we start, clearly I need to publish a retraction, since I have unleashed a wave of pain and fury by saying... Not quite sure where, whether it was on Shedcasts or here, by saying that The Clash have but one good song. I'm sorry. I didn't really mean to hurt you, or indeed to make you cry. I would like to say that The Clash do indeed have more than one good song. I'll leave it there, and hopefully we can put the whole sordid affair behind us. Last time we started on Henry's descent to the underworld of fear and suspicion, despair, dread and murder, towards the cold face of Persephone and Hades. I promised we would continue on this path, but before that, we should have some sunshine in our lives. Let us pause in the anteroom of the ill, tired and obsessive king, and instead see how the younger generation was getting on. Since the death of his older brother, Henry had been increasingly brought into the limelight, right under his father's protective eye. By 1507, Prince Henry was 16. We'll spend much, much more time talking about Henry's characteristics and so on when we start his reign, so I'm not going to go on about it now. Though, if you really want the lowdown, you could do worse than becoming a member, where among a glittering smorgasbord of delights you'll find a complete episode on the humanists and the education of the first Renaissance King of England. I speak, of course, of Henry VIII. All you have to do is go to thehistoryofengland.co.uk, pay a paltry sum for a subscription and enter the Aladdin's Cave. Or suckle at the teat of knowledge. Or choose from a glittering smorgasbord, whichever metaphor you prefer. Anyway, end of advert. At the age of 16, Henry was already something of a giant and fine physical specimen. 
a lover of sports, the hunt, and, of course, jousting. Not that his father would allow him to take part in any contact sports. The closest Henry could get was running at the ring. This was hard, but lacked sex appeal. Essentially, you rode at a gallop and tried to catch a small ring on the end of your lance. Henry was really, really good at it, which was great. But seriously, when the king went through a massive party and a joust in 1507 and all those other young men were manfully trying to beat seven bells out of each other, his son felt like a patsy sitting in the stand, catching little hoopy things. He wanted to be doing the seven-bell beating thing. One day, Henry would write some songs. One of these would go like this. Pastime with good company I love and shall until I die. Hunt, sing and dance, my heart is set. All goodly sport to my comfort, who shall me let? Could in fact have been a personal mission statement. The point I'm trying to make is that Henry was both physically impressive and a lover of a good time in the idiom of physical, fun-loving young man. Around him was already gathering a party of companions, and you'd have to say you would, wouldn't you? The old king was looking more than a little peaky and consumptive. How long was the old trout going to last? Time to look for the future. By and large, Henry's pals were the young scions of the nobility, which is, of course, exactly what you'd expect. The Earl of Wiltshire. He was the younger brother of the pearly king, the Duke of Buckingham, here of the 1500 quid robe. There was the son of the Earl of Surrey, who is the survivor of the line of the Duke of Norfolk, by the way, and the son was called Sir Edward Howard. Interestingly, one of the squires of the body was Sir Thomas Bolin, hmm, 30 years old in 1507. He was heir to half of the butler fortune in Ireland, the Earls of Ormond. Thomas Bolin married the Earl of Surrey's second daughter, Elizabeth, but at the time he was living on just 50 quid a year until his boat came in, which was tricky because he already had three children, one of whom was a seven-year-old Anne, of whom we'll probably hear more of in the future. Just possibly, maybe, perhaps, might leave her out. Don't know, think about it. There was Thomas Nivett, a superb jouster at the age of 22, who would take a vigorous and active part in the 1507 joust, much to the envy of his prince. These men came from wealthy and patrician families, which is by and large how it would remain when Henry became king and expanded his court. But there were exceptions. Not men of the people, you understand, God forbid, but slightly less exalted backgrounds. In 1493, an 11-year-old lad called William Compton was orphaned by the death of his dad. He came from Warwickshire in the Midlands, from an old castle that he would one day replace with something of a Tudor masterpiece called Compton Winniates. The Comptons' quality was country, in the sense that they were knights of some importance in their country or county, as we might say nowadays. They fell essentially into the Bufty class, which is fine, but nothing like the grandeur of those other peers around the young Henry. Anyway, since he was underage, he came into the wardship of Henry VII. Henry decided he would be suitable material for his son, and he became page to Prince Henry. They became firm friends and companions. Compton, though, was more the confidential backroom fixer type than someone like Berlin or Knivet, who were absolutely front-of-house material which is not how you describe the last of Henry's companions that I shall describe at this point. So, do you by any chance remember Henry Tudor's standard bearer at Bosworth, a man called William Brandon? The Brandon family really are something of a story, a long line of well-heeled villains. So if you'll forgive me, I think it's worth a digression. William Brandon's father was something of a chancer, or hmm, villain if you like, crook, you know, thief, bounder, cad, ne'er-do-well, confidence man, delete as applicable but not sure you're going to need the pen very much. 
constantly in court for non-payment of debt. In the Paston letters, one of the most famous events is the Pastons' struggle for their inheritance and the bare-faced violence with which they were thrown out of Caister Castle. One of their enemies was the very same William Brandon, who had the job of persuading Henry IV to rule in Brandon's favour against the Pastons. Now, Henry IV may have been a sucker for a pie, but he was no fool. Brandon, he said, Thou canst beguile the Duke of Norfolk and bring him about the thumb as thou list. I let thee wheat, though, shall not do so me, for I understand your false dealing well enough. Bang to rights, as it were. Burn. Nonetheless, William Brandon and his sons, William Jr. and Thomas, were fans of Edward, and they stuck by his sons when Richard rode into town. They joined Buckingham's rebellion, and when it crashed and burned, the older William hid out in Colchester, while the younger William and Thomas fled to Brittany to join the resistance. William Jr. appears to be no more saintly than his father. Here's a letter from John Paston in 1478, when William Jr. was but a sprig of a lad at 22. Young William Brandon is in ward and arrested for that he should have ravished and swived an old gentlewoman, and yet was not therewith eased, but swived her eldest daughter, and then would have swived the other sister both, wherefore men say foul of him, and that he would eat the hen and all her chicks. You, and some say that the king intends to punish him, and men say he is like to be hanged, for he hath wed a widow. Doesn't sound great, though... John Paston was hardly an unbiased witness, you have to say. William somehow escaped punishment, but maybe justice was served when he was hacked down at Bosworth by Richard III himself, when Brandon was bearing Henry Tudor's standard. And being so hacked, he had probably done his family a great service. He left a one-year-old son called Charles, but also a brother called Thomas, who did very well for himself in Henry VII's service. All of this put the young Charles Brandon firmly into the royal circle, so that in 1503 he was serving Prince Henry at table, and by 1507 at the age of 23 he was a squire of the body. Charles Brandon was therefore seven years older than the Prince Henry, probably the perfect age to impress the prince, and absolutely the kind of man to impress him. Larger than life, dynamic, energetic, a fighter and a jouster, a superb horseman, a lover of the hunt. A man with pretty flexible morals, and the ability to put his own needs resolutely first, without a downwards glance at the people on whose faces he was treading at the time. These are important attributes for progression at court. The ruthlessness of absolute self-belief, self-importance and ego. As an older man, he even looks a bit like Henry VIII's famous Holbein portrait. And as a young man, he was tall and athletic. To Henry, Charles Brandon was the very model, not of a modern major general, but the very model of a dashing, glamorous, careless, chivalric knight. In 1503, Brandon was master of the horse in the Earl of Essex's household, a household famed as a centre of education for young courtiers. And at this time, Brandon met Anne Brown, a gentlewoman in the Queen's household. It was love, ladies and gentlemen, love's young dream. In 1505, Brandon and Anne swore to each other to marry. The next year, she would have seen Brandon joust against Philip of Burgundy's courtiers, but she might not have been concentrating, since at some point in 1507... Anne Brown gave birth to a daughter. Now, presumably when she discovered that she was pregnant with Charles's child, Anne mentioned this might be a good time for a wedding, to turn that betrothal into something more recognised in the sight of society and the church. This would have been an uncomfortable conversation, since Brandon's answer was that, ooh, hadn't he mentioned it, he'd met her aunt and taken a bit of a shine to her. 
and presumably had laughed. <laughs> Don't be daft. She's 20 years older than you. Until all, oh, she realised that her aunt, Margaret Mortimer, was a Neville and fell foursquare into the rich widow category, Kerching. Anne was left with an illegitimate daughter, a livid father and an absent lover. Charles married Lady Margaret and set about concentrating on the reason he loved her so much. That is to say, he started selling her property and within a few months was £1,000 richer. However, he'd reckoned without Anne Brown's father, who'd gone to the law. Brandon decided, if you've deserted one person, deserting a second was neither here nor there. He managed to annul his marriage with Margaret and secretly married Anne in a Stepney church in London. For the moment, Brandon was therefore once more legit. So there you go. There are some of the men with whom the young prince surrounded himself. They are, for the most part, as I say, exactly who you'd imagine and the kind of people many royal medieval princes would have spent their time with. Charles Brandon, William Compton, would stand out a little bit. Compton, for his backstairs service and friendship. Charles Brandon, as the very public recipient of Henry's admiration, and what even looks a bit like hero worship, or when he's young anyway. However, let us be clear, while all these guys were probably having lots of fun and Henry gloried in it, for much of the time poor young Henry was able to access such fun only fitfully. Henry Senior might have been keen to share his son with the public, but he was also very keen to keep him under his careful and watchful supervision. Now then, we've had our moment in the sun, as it were. Not quite sure why I'm describing it like that, but anyway, the future type people, tomorrow's world, if I can avoid thinking of Raymond Baxter, which is a very in-the-UK reference. Apologies. But last time, we'd got to the arrival of Dudley and Empsom in 1504 and 5. The story of Henry VII's remaining years were of an increasing spiral of suspicion and extortion. In June 1506, George Bergeveni received a writ. You might remember George. We last met him at the Manor of Uelm, sharing a bed with Edmund de la Poole, dancing around trying to get his shoes back so he could go and join the Cornish rebels. Somehow, the information about all of this event had got back to Henry. Huh, wonder how that could have happened. Though, of course, Edmund de la Poole had been in the tower for a while now. I can hear the screams as we speak. Henry hadn't moved immediately, clearly. He'd sat on the information, tried to make connections, seen what other treachery might be out there and connected them all up. And they had found a couple of things. They'd found that Suffolk had been joined for dinner by Dorset and a chap called Green, who'd presumably been found in the library with a candlestick. Before you could say decapitation, George was in the tower. Dorset and Green with him. Trouble is, Henry couldn't prove anything. So much to his irritation, George had to be released. But never mind, there's more than one way of skinning a cat. A bit of investigation showed that George was retaining 470 dependents. So that had to qualify as retaining, surely. The fine, mark you, was 100,000 quid. 100,000 spondulics. How they must have laughed. Close to a year's worth of the Crown's entire annual revenue. George and his family would be paying that off for generations to come. And it was a pretty strong incentive not to step out of line or Henry might call the whole thing in at once and ruin them. Which, of course, was the point of it all. Next, Henry took a shine to the Stanley family. A shine in the sense that they looked like a good target for a bit of extortion. Our friend Thomas Stanley, husband of the Queen Mum, had been in the earth for a couple of years by now, but his son's head was above the parapet and there to be shot at. 
And so Dudley and Empson had a good look, and illegal retaining was again the Achilles' heel. This time the bill was £145,000. A goody! Another family with the sword of Damocles hovering over their heads. Emps and Dud were into the full swing of the fun by now. The rules had changed from the days of Reginald Bray. The idea that a nice gift at the right point could ease the way, for example, turn aside these excessive extortions, that was gone. Emps and Dud didn't play by these rules, because the way they figured it, they'd just extort more than the gift anyway. And that way, they didn't have to give any favours in return. Makes sense. Silly not to. And if they could be persuaded to take a little consideration, as it were, the price was insufferable. Roger Leukner, for example, brought a pardon in exchange for the title deeds to his estates. Usually our heroes stayed within the letter of the law but manipulated people or process. So, for example, William Clopton was on the verge of winning his court case when Dudley had it stopped. And only when Clopton paid 200 marks did his case proceed. Dudley squeezed the London Corporation as well. As the London Chronicle dryly noted, the elections were a complete waste of time because, quote, Whosoever had the sword born before him, Dudley was the mayor, and whatever his pleasure was, was done. In 1506, then, the city made the mistake of failing to elect the king's candidate. Hmm. So Dudley stopped the elections and told them to try again. And hey, good lord and good golly, this time the right person was elected. Oh, and happened to pay Dudley a hundred quid. Though I have to say there's nothing really that new in this. You might remember the outrage of the Norman and Angevin kings if their monastic appointments were not confirmed by ecclesiastical election. Now, if you're sitting comfortably, we can have another story. I shall begin. Thomas Suniff was a haberdasher in London, married to Alice. In 1507, one of Empson's creatures, a man called John Camby, decided he would be a good target. So a prostitute was found, and she agreed to claim that she'd had a baby by Thomas Suniff and that he'd dumped the baby in the Thames. It was all a lie. But the whole point was to make Thomas pay a £500 bond already owing to the king. Now, Thomas was made of stern stuff, and he refused to be bullied. So Camby dragged him off to the tower, and Empson had his mate Dud appear and threatened Suniff again. Still, he refused to yield. So, Camby took Suniff off to a private jail, where he'd be even less subtle with his intimidation. Still, Suniff held out. Let's have these claims made in the full light of day. It must be, he insisted, at a full trial of the king's bench. That'll cook your goose. Which displays a touching faith in the English justice system, does it not? And Suniff eventually managed to get his wish. The case came to a king's bench. The shining impartiality of medieval justice was in full operation. A note arrived telling the judges not to award bail, which of course they faithfully complied with, leaving Suniff at the mercy of his jailers for a little bit longer. And blow me, if Suniff stubbornly still refused to yield. Dudley, Empsom and Camby then had a brainwave. What on earth have they been playing at? Do The answer was, of course, to just go and take the money. What on earth were they waiting for? There's all this court case stuff. So they duly sent their thugs along to ransack Suniff's house, and Bob's your father's brother, easy peasy, squeezed the lemon. Finally, Sonnet saw the error of his ways cracked and paid up. Although by this time the price had gone up and he had to pay another £100 for the trouble caused, presumably. Nor was even this the end. Emps and Dud weren't meant to hold grudges for more than five or six years, which meant that in 1508, Camby was back. 
Sunif received an urgent message to see Dudley and was told to go to a specific pub rather than the tower. When he got there, it was a trick. There was Camby and a bunch of his closest friends waiting for him. And Sunif once more found himself incarcerated. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I could go on, but I think you get the idea. The rubric here is this. That Henry hired two dogs and let them off the leash. By and large, they did stay within the law, hunting down feudal rights and dues, finding lords who had, fair enough, transgressed the law, and then pursuing them relentlessly, levying the most outrageous fines, which would keep the whole family in hock to the king forever, essentially. That although this was in the strict letter of the law, it was deeply unusual. It was not customary. A medieval man liked customary. They did not like innovation and new things where they could avoid it. New stuff created fear. There's no doubt that by the end of Henry's reign, these pretty intolerable exactions had affected a lot of people and were raising a lot of money. Dudley was able to record in his little black book in 1508 that he'd managed to generate bonds and fines of £219,000 since he'd started his job. That's a pretty massive amount of money, and there was probably more hidden away. Although we can't be sure exactly how much cash actually came into the chamber treasury, much of this money was held over for good behaviour, so the victims didn't actually have to pay while they stayed in line. However, in the first 15 years of Henry's reign, 870 people had been bound in debt, which in itself is pretty impressive. Once Morton and Bray had left the scene after 1500, a staggering 3,500 had been bound in debt. Remember that with a population of 2 million people, the top 2% accounted for pretty much all the noble families. So 3,500 most noble families would have been affected by that number in some way. If you look at the peerage specifically, there were 62 families in the peerage throughout the reign. 47 of those families were at the king's mercy for some part of the reign. Seven of those families were under attainder, 36 had bonds or recognises. If you were a peer and not bound by some threat to the king in some way, you were probably either dead or a minor. Whatever you might say about them, Dudley and Empson were without doubt efficient. In the course of their reign of terror, they also amassed great personal fortunes. Though I am again bound to point out in all fairness, and in the words of Tom Jones, it's not unusual. No medieval public servant got to the level of influence achieved by Emps and Dud without milking the position for all it was worth. It was expected. It was part of the remuneration package in terms of employment. Sure, these two were unusually brutal and methodical about it, but there was scarcely an innovation. It might be thought that maybe Henry, in his poor health, was unaware of the terrible things done in his name. This is unlikely. Henry, as we know, was a close observer of the account books, and all of these cases we've talked about were in pursuit of the king's financial advantage and ended up in the chamber accounts. 
In addition, in many ways, Henry paid personal attention to all of this. So we know that in 1508, for example, he appointed a new position, that of surveyor. A man called Belknap was appointed. Now, Belknap's job was to create a national network of ferrets, of deputies, that is to say, whose job it was to ferret and to find out any examples they could find where the king's rights might have been ignored, however arcane and ancient those rights might be. Or indeed, where there might be an opportunity to apply those rights again, however arcane or out of date they might be, for the king's advantage. Belknap reported to Dudley and Empsom, but his accounts were scrutinised directly by Henry. Although, as I said earlier, it's difficult to know exactly how much money came into the chamber treasury in this way, it's clear that it did have an impact. In 1489, Henry had managed to get the public finances in order, in that his accounts showed a £5,000 surplus. As long as he sat very still, didn't move his head too much, he'd be OK. From somewhere around ten years later, 1497 or so, foreign ambassadors began to gossip about how rich Henry was. And for the last 18 years of his reign, Henry seems to have been generating a significant surplus. And he followed a policy of investing any surplus income in the hard, tangible stuff, jewels and plate. It could be that he'd saved up as much as £300,000 worth by the time of his death. But equally, when he died, there was nothing left in cash in the chamber treasury. All his hard work was tied up in two things, these tangible assets and something much more intangible, the fear, suspicion and dread of the ruling classes. The 17th century historian Francis Bacon, who's had such an influence on Henry's dark reputation, had called Henry, quote, full of apprehensions and suspicions. And it seems pretty clear this is not a wild statement, certainly not by the end of the reign. One of the conversations Bray's agents had wrinkled out was from a treasurer of Calais, a man called Sir Hugh Conway, who privately remarked, For the king's grace is but a weak and sickly man, not likely to be a long-lived man. By the last few years of his reign, Henry had spent his life battling pretenders, Simnel, Lincoln, Warbeck, de la Poole, spent his life obsessed with the simple adage that to be successful, a king had to be richer and more powerful than his subjects, and in pursuit of that adage, poring over the account books. He was constantly ill, he'd lost many of his trusted advisers, many of the people closest to him. It's not terribly surprising that he got to him a bit. Nor did Henry's approach to his subjects encourage loyalty. The very same Hugh Conway had come across talk in Calais of supporting pretenders against Henry, when he reported them, he quickly came to regret his loyalty. Typically, in these circumstances, Henry took the view that if someone came to him with secrets out of the blue, they were doing it either because they wanted to make some money or advantage, or they were just distracting him from some other secret and were therefore not to be trusted either. There's some sign that Henry was aware that he was pushing this way too far, or at least you can look at it in that way. In 1505, rather remarkably actually, a royal proclamation declared that anyone who could make a case that they'd been treated wrongly by the Crown could write to several named officials. Huh, interesting. Looks rather like a fit of conscience. That very same year, he wrote a shamefaced letter to his frighteningly pious mother, admitting that all the appointments of bishops he had made had been entirely for practical, secular reasons. You might be horrified at the very idea that a bishop should be anything other than a holy man and a great theologian, Henry didn't give a bishop's theology a second thought. He was rewarding his administrators. Anyway, shamefaced, and probably not unconnected with a bout of illness that brought Henry closer to his maker than he would have liked, 
Henry was moved to appoint a bishop to a see who actually was a noted preacher and theologian. Though it is worth noting that the see in question, Rochester, was the poorest in England. No point in going overboard. The man concerned was called John Fisher. Fisher was his mother's confessor and came recommended by Richard Fox, so Henry was also mollifying people around him as well as his conscience. Fisher is another interesting man, charismatic, pious and an intellectual giant. Also slightly odd, in that he was given to keeping a skull with him at the supper table, which might have put some people off their spinach puffs at a thought, or their swan's elbows, whatever was on the menu. But we'll have plenty of time to come back to John Fisher in the future, never you fear. The point is that if you do indeed read Henry's actions as over-the-top and obsessive, it appears that every so often voices reached him that he needed to make amends. Often this was the voice of his conscience, or the imminence of death, more like. In March 1507, for example, when it looked as though he'd died, he croaked to his chaplains to order the singing of over 7,000 masses for his soul. That's a sign of a man who thinks he's got a problem to discuss with his maker. One of those chaplains, by the way, was a young butcher's son called Thomas Wolsey, who'd got himself a position as a royal chaplain and almoner. You'll hear a lot more about young Wolsey, let me tell you. And then in early 1509, Henry fell ill again, with similar asthmatic and consumptive problems he'd had in 1507. Henry retreated in February to his grand new palace of Richmond, to his private apartments, and would reportedly not allow himself to be seen. On one occasion, Prince Henry stood in for ambassadors from Italy. The family gathered, Princess Mary, for example, coming to join her father. Margaret Beaufort tipped up to help her son through another illness and brought John Fisher with her to minister either to the king's physical salvation or spiritual if necessary. Masses were ordered to be sung for the king's health, but by this time it was looking like the end. Henry once again went through the cycle of panic, for example, promising, quote, a true reform of all them that were officers and ministers of his laws, which again looks like an admission of guilt. But it had all been heard before, and this time there was to be no reprieve. Late at night on the 21st of April, 1509, Henry VII breathed his last. Next time, let's go back to the beginning, as it were, and look at those questions we posed about Henry VII. Was he really a man who saved England from chaos, was he really a nasty piece of work, or maybe even an incompetent who took England and her monarchy to the edge of disaster? It will be a full and frank exchange of views. Meanwhile, thank you very much for listening. Don't forget to check out the members-only Shedcasts, which are a hoot of the highest order, and join the Fellowship of the Shed. Which brings me to the end of another episode, and to another round of thanks. Now, I tend to do this, as I have worried before, it can get to be wallpaper. So let me thank specifically this week everyone who's taken the trouble to post a review on my Facebook page. It's lovely of you to take the trouble. Thank you very much. So good luck, everyone. Next week, I have a week off. So have a great fortnight. Mom. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.